In John 2, Jesus drives out the money changers and those selling sacrificial animals from the temple. Now you may wonder, what? What were these people doing there at the temple? But if you remember, the temple was like God's embassy on earth, where his presence resided in the holiest of holies, and it's also where people made their animal sacrifices. Now God's people were commanded back in Leviticus, remember Leviticus, to sacrifice animals for atonement of their sins. So many foreigners would come to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices. So it was only a matter of time before someone thought, hey, Let's sell animals to sacrifice in case you forgot one or just weren't able to bring one. Now, it kind of sounds like shrewd entrepreneurship, but the problem is these people would actually increase the price so much and they would gouge the people. It's kind of like when you go to a ball game and you wonder what could possibly cost $13 for a hot dog. Anyways, you can see why Jesus had a problem with this. So you take the temple, something that is sacred, and worship, and then you have people who are ripping other people off and making a huge profit and even gouging the poor. Now let's take a look at the money changers. According to Deuteronomy, the temple tax is a half shekel, which a shekel is Jewish currency. Now many foreigners, once again, would pay the annual temple tax whenever they came to Jerusalem, but they often had Roman currency. So this pagan currency would not be acceptable at the temple, so they would exchange it for Jewish currency. Once again, these money changers made huge profits, creating their own exchange rate and gouging the poor. Now it is kind of funny that if pagan money is so bad, then why, why do they take it? Anyways, it's no wonder that Jesus made a quarter whips and ran them out. So there you go, a little bit about the money changers, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for another beautiful day here in Phoenix. We thank you for our families, our friends. We thank you for a place that we can come and just worship you in truth. We, we pray tonight, Lord, as we dig into your word again, that you would teach us, that you would comfort us, that you would strengthen us, that you remind us that you've got us, that you love us, that we're yours. Father, be with us tonight as we dig into John, and, and Father, let us walk away with some things that we can think about all week, that we can apply to our lives, that can make our lives better, that can remind us that you are with us all the way. And so we pray that tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Tonight we find ourselves in chapter 2 of John, and we're beginning with a wedding at Cana. And so I'll just begin. It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, it's interesting that Mary had a role here that kind of assumed responsibility over their having no wine and that the servants listened to her later on in the story, right? And so what that indicates is that Mary was pretty close to these people. Probably Jesus was pretty close to these people. Some commentators or some history that kind of suggests that maybe it was uh, one of Mary's sisters and she was at, at the thing, maybe even John's mother. I mean, who knows? But, but the reality is that she was close to these people and they had a problem. So she went to the Savior of the world and said, could you solve it, right? Now, it's interesting, Mary, right? Mary is the mother of Jesus. She's been with Jesus now for 30 years. Joseph has been out of the picture for a while now. We know that he, when Jesus was younger, was a carpenter in the various stops that they had. But for whatever reason, he's not mentioned here. So the kind of the indication that he's been gone for a little bit. Jesus would have been the oldest and would have assumed responsibility of taking care of the family for that period of time. And sometimes you just kind of wonder, what has he been doing for 30 years that he's finally heading out? He's been taking care of his family, right? So, so that's part of what's going on on as well. So they're at this thing, and Mary goes to Jesus to say, hey, can you solve this problem of wine? 
Now, you might think, well, why is this such a big deal? Well, uh, one of these weddings would, would actually be going on for about a week. Uh, tradition says they had to start on Wednesday. At, I don't know why. Every wedding had to start on Wednesday. And it was pretty meticulous the way you were supposed to do this. In fact, there was even legal ramifications if you brought the wet, wrong kind of wedding gift, which I don't know why there was legal ramifications for that, but there was. And so it was a pretty big deal if your wedding ran out of wine. For the guests. Wine was one of the statues or one of the primary things that people would drink during this time. Um, and it was just kind of an expectation that you would have plenty of wine for such a thing as a wedding. And it wasn't just the embarrassment that would happen as a result of being that family that ran out of wine. But again, there also could have been some legal ramifications as a result of this. And so Mary worried about her sister, whoever it was that she was close to, goes to Jesus. Another interesting thing about the fact that she's going to Jesus is, I don't know, I mean, she's been with Jesus 30 years. I mean, a while back she had these prophecies, right, from the angels, and then she turned up pregnant. She's like, yeah, God's doing something here. But it's been a while since then, right? She's watched Jesus grow up. We learn from Luke that he grew in stature, right, with man and God, and so he was something clearly different about Jesus. There's even um, some, oh, what are they called? Um... I know, some, some history kind of that goes back, some, some ideas that, that are written in different places that people in the town, when they were having trouble, when they were feeling insecure, when they were feeling stressed, when they were feeling worried, they would go and look upon Mary's son and they would feel better, right? Kind of a weird thing. But, but the reality is there was something different about Jesus growing up. They were impressed with the way he carried himself. They were impressed with the way that, that he understood God's word, his law, all those different things. They were impressed probably by the way he stepped up after Joseph passed. I mean, for all these different reasons, they looked at Jesus as something special. But clearly Mary didn't go to Jesus because he was something special. Where was he going to get all this wine in the last minute for a wedding party that was happening at that moment? She went to him because she had seen him do things throughout the years that were simply miraculous. That testified to the fact that he was God's son. And so regularly had he must have done these things that in the first thing that she thinks of in a moment of crisis is Jesus can do it, right? That he could make the wine appear, that he could solve this whole problem. And so sure of herself was she that even when Jesus responds by saying this, woman, what, is, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now in English it sounds pretty brutal, like you shouldn't talk to your mom like that, right? Um, <laughs> But it's really more, a woman was more like saying, uh, kind lady, right? It, it was more of a, a term of respect. Um, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, when he was referring to, to Cleopatra, you know, the, the ruler of Egypt, referred to her as this woman, this kind lady. Um, it, it was a term of respect over and over in the ancient times. And so he was kind of saying a nice thing to her in that part. But it actually would read something more like this. What do your purposes have to do with mine at this time? It's almost like he said this, Mom, I just told you I was going out and starting my ministry, right? I, I, I told you it's time. I got these disciples with me. You're making me look bad. Right? Stop doing that. Now, this was Jesus, so none of that was happening, right? But he had clearly had to talk and said, now is my time for ministry. Now is my time to make myself known. And, and Mom, making water, wine out of water, that, that's just not the way I want to start, Right? What do your purposes have to do with mine? My purposes right now are to share with everybody that I'm the Son of God, that I'm the Messiah that is to come, that all who put their faith in me can be saved through the forgiveness of sins I'm going to win for them. 
I want people to believe in me so that they can go to heaven. I want people to see me for who I am. It's time for me to reveal myself. And mom's concerned about the wedding, okay? But I love Jesus all the way through the scriptures. One of the things that John does or emphasizes with the, um, with the miracles that Jesus does is he calls them, um, oh, he calls them, what was, and I can't remember what he calls them. Um, he calls them something, and I'm gonna remember just in a little bit what it's called. But the reality is he, he does these things in a way that shows God's love in each one of the miracles that he does. Um, and what he wants to do is emphasize how much God loves us by revealing himself in these different ways. And so what's interesting about this is, you know in, in the other passages in the Gospels where all the people are coming to him and Jesus shows compassion on them? You, you almost get a sense in this moment, Jesus shows compassion. He says, you know what, I can figure this out. And he figures out a way to solve his mom's problem. And he figures out a way to reveal himself as to his disciples and yet another way that's only gonna you know, cement their faith, grow their faith in him, expand for them who he is, right? They've already confessed that he's Messiah, but they had no idea what that meant. Now all of a sudden he can turn water into wine. It's expanding for them who he is. And you also get the sense that not very many people knew how this happened. You, that the disciples knew, that the guys that were filling the, water, the jars full of water, that they knew, that the servants knew, that Mary knew. But in a very small way, Jesus was able to say, okay, I'm gonna start revealing myself to my disciples. I'm gonna solve your problem, because I love you, Mom, and I love whoever this is that we're at the wedding at, right? And, and, and I'm gonna do these things because I, I want you to know that you have a God who cares, and a God who loves you, even about the small stuff in life. And, and if you don't get anything else out of the wedding at Canaan, that God cares about the small stuff. Not that this was such a small thing. I mean, public rebuke, public shame, or, or worse, that, that's a pretty big deal. But, but the reality is that God cares about all the stuff that's going on in our life. And even when he has greater purpose, it doesn't mean he doesn't find the things that we're struggling with insignificant. And he somehow works them all into his plan. His grace is there always for us when we're struggling. His concern, his, his love for us continues no matter what we're going through. And I keep saying that life is hard and God is good and it's absolutely true and God walks with us as we go through that hard life reminding us that he's got us, that he loves us, that we're his often doing the miraculous along the way to remind us of those very things in vivid terms. So he's going through this wedding at Cana, and he's saying, Mom, we don't have, we're not on the same page here. But his mom says this, do whatever he tells you. She's seen him again and again and again. Just do what's right. Do the right thing in almost every circumstance. And even though his son, her son, Jesus, her Lord, right, kind of a complicated, I'm sure, relationship, but the reality is she knew that no matter what he said, he was going to do the right thing. And so she commands her servants in absolute trust. Can you see that? Just do whatever he says. They follow his, his advice, and God does this miracle. I'm going to read for you just through that part, and then I want to talk about this a little bit more. But it says, now there were six stone water jars uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification. They would wash their feet because their feet would get dirty traveling in, right? That was one of the things that you were expected to do at these kind of functions. And they were also there to wash the hands before you eat. That was also a Jewish ritual, something that was very important. But he says, okay, fill these jars full of water, each holding 20 to 30 gallons worth. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Never mind what the servants were thinking at this point, right? But, so they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, 
and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, you know, everybody who serves good wine, everyone kind of serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I want to come back to Mary's absolute trust. If, if you ever want to see or read a cool thing, I mentioned it this morning, but read, read David's description of how he was feeling and what he said to Goliath as he was going out to meet him. There was a guy of complete trust in the Lord. He didn't go out with armor. He just went out with a sling and a stone. He went out to fight this giant that everybody was afraid of, and he just said, I got God. I have the Lord, and that's enough. In fact, as he's talking to Goliath face to face and kind of inciting him on, he's saying, the Lord's gonna destroy you in this fight just now, and so bring himself glory. There was no doubt at all in this young David. Similarly, when you look at Mary, there is no doubt at all that Jesus is gonna come through. One of the biggest things I can encourage you guys, and we're all struggling as disciples of Jesus, right, as we're going through this life, because life is hard and God is good, but one of the biggest things I, I wanna to continue to encourage you is to trust God for more. Not just know the promises of God, but that's step one for sure, but actually sit down and decide to trust him. Does that make sense? Because nothing in you is going to want to do it. You've got to decide, I'm just going to trust him for what he says. I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to wait to see the miracle that transpires. Because he comes through again and again and again and again and again. And lots of times we don't see these miracles in our life because we just don't trust him. And so we don't get to see him work in these cool ways. But if he's promised it, we can cling to that promise. So just as examples, I challenge you all to tithe. It's a scary thing, right? Money makes the world go round. We like to be in control of our finances. It's a big deal. There's a lot of people that don't want to do it. They don't, just are scared to death out of their minds to trust God for something like that. But what's his promise in Scripture? Anybody know? That he will open up the storehouses of heaven and bless you beyond your imagination. And then he says, test me in this in Malachi. Test me in this if you don't believe me. I dare you all to test him in it. And see him do the incredible. I dare you to test him in prayer when you come to him in prayer. Knowing that 90% of the time he's going to answer your prayer just the way you're praying. And that in that 10%, if he says no or wait, it's because he's got something better in store. I especially dare you to trust him in that in-between of the something better in store. And then watch what he does. Trust him that he's with you all the time. Trust him that he'll give you strength all the time. Trust him that if you just... Trust him, he'll give you peace in the midst of the storm. And then look at some of these people in scripture and look the way they trusted him. They just knew. There was no hesitation, there was no wavering. It was just, we trust Jesus to do the right thing in this situation. David, I trust God to come through at this moment because I know it's gonna bring him glory. It's one of the most remarkable things about some of these people in scripture. It's things that we should aspire to, not just think it's fanciful and never try, right? But I promise you, the more you trust, the more peace you will experience in your life, and the more miracles you will see him do in your life. So many things that happen today that are miracles, we just kind of dismiss of like, I don't know, it just happened, but, but God's working. 
So he goes through, and the the servants, they got to be blown out of their mind as this is happening, and I'm sure they put their faith and trust in the Lord. And the disciples were blown away. They were already blown away that he saw, uh, Nathaniel saw, that Jesus saw him under the tree before he even saw him, right? Now he's turned water into wine. Who is this guy? I mean, he's the Messiah, right? But we're trying to figure this out. And you'll see all the way through the Gospels, the the first three and this one too, that Jesus is expanding for the disciples who he is. These are going to be his emissaries into this world. They are his disciples to go spread the word of who he is to the ends of the earth. He wants them to know exactly who he is. And he's going to keep blowing out the foundations of that. We put him in this nice little box and says, this is who God is for us. He forgives our sins and he takes us to heaven. But Jesus wants to keep blowing those sides off so that we trust him for more. After this, he went, to a town, or he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Interesting, they brought up his brothers so Jesus was the oldest, and, and, and I don't know if he had four or five or six other brothers, but, but they kind of grew up with him, and now they were of age to take over the family business and different things. But it's interesting, too, they must have seen a lot of these things over the years as well. They knew Jesus was different, special. They also saw the way he took care of the family for that period of time. Their love for him must have been real, but also some of the jealousy that probably invades families from time to time. They must have been conflicted as they watched their brother go through all that he did, suffered the way that he did. But I tell you, when you start looking at the names of the people writing these books, when you start looking at the leaders of the early church, his brothers are littered all the way through. That what they knew was confirmed somehow when he rose again, and it changed their life and their courage level to follow him. So the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers all sitting there and making, well, and then he got upset. So Mike talked about this a little bit, but what he didn't share was that Caiaphas, which was the high priest, had just recently got permission from the Sanhedrin. And I guess it was this huge debate, and it went down to the wire, but they ended up with the most votes. Got permission to bring all these people into in the courtyard, the place where the Gentiles were to worship, right? That, that outer court area. They had just got permission to bring all these money changers and these sellers of the herds into that court to do their business. And I'm sure from a church mindset, they're thinking, well, we want to make sure they have the right animals, right? Because they've got to be an animal without defect. And, you know, people coming in, they're going to try to you know, say this is without defect when clearly it's not, and so they're going to need new animals. A lot of them came from a distance, so they're going to need new animals. And so let's make that super convenient right there in the courtyard for them to have it. And then they wanted the shekel, right, that that was the only measure that they would take. And part of it was not that they didn't trust Roman money, but they wanted to make sure that they were getting what they were getting, right? They wanted to make sure that the value that was coming in remained constant, And so no matter where you were, they knew that if you were bringing the shekel, they were getting X amount in their treasuries. They wanted to make that super simple. It was a matter of convenience, right? It's like, uh, well, this is a little different, but um, so we want you all to tithe even if you have to charge it. And so we put charge card things in the fuse, right? A little different than that, right? Because that's about tithing. But but the reality is we want to make it super convenient. You can even see the rationale on the board, right? Well, absolutely. We want to make it as easy as possible. We want them to be able to do this. And even if they forget their cash, which sometimes you forget your cash. And so this allows you to do that. 
but they brought it right in. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying it's an example of trying to think of things that are super convenient, but maybe lose sight of what's important. And what was important is that that outer court was meant for worship. It was meant for connecting with God, for receiving the forgiveness of your sins, which reconciled you to God, right? As we went through Leviticus, it was God showing his love to those people. And now in the backdrop of that, imagine in the back, they're selling herds and, and changing money and there's talking all the time and it's just constantly ringing in your ears and is it harder to connect when people are talking? Yeah. So you got all this going on and Jesus comes in, probably the first time, so it looks like, it sounds like from, from the history stuff I was reading that it just got passed. Jesus comes in, probably for the first time in his life, he's seeing all this in the inner court or in the outer court, and he gets a jealous rage for God. There is a godly anger and there is an ungodly anger. Most of the time we, we major in the ungodly anger, or we have that godly anger for a second and then it turns into ungodly anger, right? But Jesus was legitimately angry, and he was trying to make a point. Now you say, well, how is this an act of love? Well, when people get it wrong in church, when we do things that are counterproductive to the main thing, which is Jesus, who does it hurt most of all? People, right? The people that are coming to worship, the people that are coming to connect with God. They're getting sidetracked or they're getting distracted by all the stuff that isn't relevant instead of focusing on the stuff that is. We've talked about in Bible study sometimes the, the red carpet, green carpet church because there was actually a church that divided because of the color of carpet they had just, it was a small church, they just gotten enough money to, they raised, they did a capital campaign, raised enough money to change the, the carpet in the church. They were so excited. This was the first major project they had done in years. They got enough money, and then they came to the point of deciding, okay, let's set up a committee to decide what color carpet it is going to be. And they couldn't decide between red carpet or green carpet, and so the church divided. And one half of the church moved across the street and set up their own church. And it's one of the stupidest things I can ever imagine. I remember in seminary, because who cares what color carpet it is, right? If you're worshiping Jesus. At least they could have brought him into it and said, well, which color best represents Jesus' love for us? Is it the red carpet where he died on the cross or the green carpet where he wants us to grow in Christ? I mean, which one do we want to be about, right? But either way, we want to be about Jesus, and that's where Satan gets into congregations, I think. He, he sidetracks us from the main things. And maybe it was a great business meeting that Caiaphas had that came up with, we want this to be super convenient, and they didn't think all the way through because maybe, I don't know, they stopped prioritizing worship in defense of other things. But somehow they had lost focus, and they were hurting the people. The history books are right, too. There was a lot of the people that didn't like the fact that they were doing this in the courtyard. There was a lot of the Pharisees that didn't like the fact that they were doing this in the courtyard. And you'll notice when Jesus does this that he's not rebuked by anybody. They probably secretly sided with him. They just want to know the authority on which he was progressing. So Jesus, upset with a godly anger, makes a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. Also, there was a rule you couldn't bring an, uh, a deadly weapon into the courts. Okay, so 
They considered that a weapon, and so he should have been arrested. He was not. And he poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables, and he told those who had sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, not you're arrested, and they certainly had temple guards there, but what sign do you show us for doing these things? Clearly, stuff's happening in the church, Right? John the Baptist is, is having waves and waves of people go out to the wilderness to hear that they're forgiven. They're being baptized in mass. Something, he keeps talking about one who's to come, and this guy shows up turning over tables. Are you the one? Is behind the question. Jesus answers curiously, but he says this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Just for perspective, Herod as a way to appease himself to the people of Israel, especially Jerusalem, set out in an endeavor to rebuild the temple. It took 60 years. They were in year 45. For 45 years, they had been rebuilding the temple. There were some stones in that temple that were over 70 tons. It was impressive. It blew people away when they saw it. Even the Romans in AD 70, when they came in, I forget the general's name, but he stood in awe of the temple and didn't want it to be looted or destroyed because he was so impressed but the men who had fought such a, I guess, a nasty battle at that time went and they pillaged it anyway and he couldn't control them, but, but it was recorded him as saying that. So for 45 years, they'd been working on this temple. It wasn't complete yet. And Jesus says, yeah, tear it down and I'll build it back up in three days. He was talking not of mass construction, right? But he was talking of dying and then rising again. Now, why would he equate himself with the new temple? But wasn't he? It was the old temple that you went to for forgiveness of sins. To sacrifice the blood of the lambs so that you could be atoned for, forgiven, reconciled with God. It is now through Jesus when he dies on the cross and rises again, through Jesus that we are forgiven, that we are atoned for. That we are made right with God. Jesus says, tear it down. And in three days I will give you something that will never end. The Jews then said, it has taken 40, oh, sorry, 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about, about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So what's interesting, from the other Gospels, you get the sense that maybe he just went to Jerusalem that one time, right? That he did most of his ministry in Galilee and Capernaum and those areas, and then he came to Jerusalem in the final week. But what you learn from John and is alluded to in some of the other Gospels is that he went to Jerusalem a lot, like every year. I mean, as was prescribed by Jewish law. And as he went this time, he was doing miracles left and right, and people were coming to faith in him, or at least because of the miracles that they saw. You know, there's a rule that uh, new Christians shouldn't be in church leadership for at least a year. Do you know why? Because as they come to faith and learn about who God is, and they get overwhelmed with, with just his grace and his love and, 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 and how much he cares about them, and how he wants to reach everybody in the world, the last thing you want to encumber them with is church politics. Amen? 
In fact, you need strong people to deal with church politics because what you realize in church politics is that sometimes people are sinful in church. <gasps> Did I say that? Yeah, it's crazy. That sometimes we get it wrong. That yes, we are a house of saints because we all believe in Jesus, but we are more a hospital for sinners that come because we need redeeming, because we need help, because we need his presence in our life and his forgiveness in our life to keep on going and to figure stuff out. And as we're figuring this out, sometimes we say and do things that are unhelpful. But you take a new Christian and you throw them into that pit and they're going, I don't see God's love here. I don't see his care. I don't see that we're focusing on main things. And that should be a rebuke to the more mature amongst us, right? That somehow we've allowed ourselves to get so focused on the non-essential that we're forgetting the essential. So as all these people are coming to faith in him, he just, he didn't entrust himself. What happens in politics when you entrust yourself to somebody? You kind of owe them, right? Because they're usually giving you lots of money. And so can you vote any way you want to if you're entrusted to somebody? How about if you entrust yourself to a crowd, even you guys, if you become my main concern, if your opinion of me becomes my main concern, can you manipulate what I do up here? Yeah. Because I may say something that a lot of you don't like and I might be feeling like, oh, they don't like me. So I might change what's being in here to pacify the crowd because I've entrusted myself to them. Jesus didn't want to entrust himself to anybody because he wanted his witness to be his. And he wanted people to come to him for who he was on his own terms. It's probably a lesson for all of us in different ways, but the reality is he goes forward. Now, there was, actually, let me get to this question. Why is the cleansing at the temple in the beginning of John but at the end of the other gospels? Great question. There's a lot of discussion on that, but it seems just to be that he did it twice, right? I mean, that's kind of the consensus of, of different things. He starts his ministry that way, appalled by what they just had put into motion. <laughs> and who do you think that upset the most when he did that initially? If Caiaphas was the one that rammed that thing through, who do you think he upset the most when he made a deal of it? And when public opinion didn't support, you know, arresting him or anything like that, Caiaphas. So right from the beginning of his ministry, he upsets the man that was after him the whole time, right? And at the end, he did it to make that point one more time. You're making my father's house something that it shouldn't be. Now I'll ask you this, what if he came today? What if Jesus came to our church or, or any of the churches in America today? Would he be all like thumbs up? Love what you're doing? There's a lot of churches in America today that are abandoning the truth of God for different agendas that are out there. Do you think he'd be upset? Would he have a godly indignation over that? More and more of us should have a godly indignation over that. In fact, I, I don't encourage you guys to leave a church ever, right? It's your family, God's family, unless they stop teaching this. And if they stop teaching this, flee from them is what Scripture says. And surround yourself with Bible, with good teaching from Scripture. How about all the different churches that forgiveness isn't the main thing, but maybe social issues, Maybe a building project, maybe, I don't know, county fair. I mean, I don't, I don't know. But there's lots of churches out there that somehow have lost focus on Jesus as the main thing and have made themselves about other things. 
They brought stuff into the courtyards of God and they are focusing on the wrong things and it's hurting the people. There should be a godly indignation over that. How about if he came into one of our voters' meetings? Thumbs up all the way around. I love the way you're discussing things, right? I love the attitudes of the heart. I sing praises in the midst of this. Or is he disappointed that we're getting frustrated over things that are unimportant? Not unimportant, but maybe not the importance. That we forget that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and because of the green carpet or the red carpet, we start getting upset over the craziest of things. We just lose sight. But what if Jesus came to us in the midst of that? I think it's a question to ask ourselves to help us see, are we doing it right? Are we doing it wrong? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, it's interesting, Nicodemus, what we know about him is that he was a teacher. Actually, Jesus calls him the teacher in Israel. So he was a teacher of some note, um, maybe one of the primary teachers uh, that were going. There's only 6,000 Pharisees, and he seemed to be one of the primary teachers of those Pharisees. So he's probably pretty well-known, pretty well-famous. And he comes to Jesus at night knowing the, I guess, the temperature of the water in the Sanhedrin toward Jesus. And he seeks to understand more. But it makes sense if he's a godly teacher and he spent his whole life studying the scriptures and studying the Talmud and some of the other dumb things that they created. But the reality is that he's been immersed his whole life in looking for the Messiah and studying the word of God. And all of a sudden this guy comes and man is he nailing the teaching. And man is he doing stuff that nobody else should be able to do. And he keeps talking about forgiveness and he keeps talking about eternal life. And it prompted him to want to know more. And so he came in the middle of the night so that nobody would know him. And he said, Rabbi, and, and he confesses right from the beginning, we know that you are a teacher come from God, knowing that he must have talked to other people within the Sanhedrin about Jesus. And we knew there were sympathizers within the Sanhedrin who believed in Jesus but didn't come forward for sake of rebuke. For no one else can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting in Jewish culture, for a Gentile to become a Jew, they use this terminology, being born again with the water that, that was washed over them. I mean, they actually used the terminology when Jesus used that imagery for Nicodemus. It must all of a sudden have connected some of the dots as he was asking these questions. Because all of a sudden what is shared with Nicodemus is just like the Gentiles became Jewish, there was something new that Jesus was offering that would have to go through that same kind of process. And he says this is an important thing. Unless one is born again, he cannot, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? I mean, we always use like that's this crazy term within Lutheran circles, but the reality is it just means coming to an understanding of what? That Jesus forgives you. 
Right? Isn't that why we're here? Because he forgives us? Because he gives us fresh starts? Because he reconciles us with God? Because he gives us entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that why we give our lives to him? At some point we came to that realization that this was something special that we did not want to lose and it changed our lives. At least to the point where we get up on a Sunday morning or come on a Saturday night and we listen to me talk, right? But the reality is it changed our lives. And all of a sudden there was something more important than just the day-to-day stuff. It changed the way we thought. It changed our perspective on things. It has to if we believe it as true. Being born again, we talked about it in the morning. This forgiveness thing is a pretty powerful thing, isn't it? If we do it right. Because if we receive the forgiveness the way God won it for us on the cross, Jesus did, then we can let all our past sin go. Which means nobody can manipulate us for it anymore. Which means we don't have to beat ourselves up for it anymore. Because Jesus has died for that sin so that we can be forgiven and renewed. And here's this, given freedom to move forward without it. There's a tangible freedom that comes from the forgiveness of God that I want everybody to experience. I want you to know it in in, in real terms. I want you to get excited when you're walking back from the communion rail because God has just taken it all away. I want you to experience the peace that should come from it, knowing that God's got you and still loves you, even though you just blew it over here. And giving forgiveness means committing to release them from that sin. Because holding on to that grudge, to that sin, to that hurt, to that past, all it does is make you rehearse that same thing again and again and again for years. All it does is build up resentment and anger in your life for years, and it affects your health, it affects your psyche, it affects you, your spiritual self. All it does is harm you. They hurt you once, but you rehearsed it a million times. God says, forgive them and draw on my strength to forgive them, release them from this sin. I am still the judge. And I will let them know, right? They will either repent and come to me or they will not repent and they will not come to me. But either way, you need to release this and give them to me. But when we get that stuff, it should transform our lives. It should give us a freedom, a bounce to move ahead in life, unencumbered by the past and motivated and given energy to deal with the present in new ways. All God's promises are like that. And that born again is just realizing that Jesus is your God, that Jesus loves you, that he died, he rose so that you could be with him forever. And that change in life, that change in perspective, that change in attitude, that change in, that's that new beginning. That fresh start, that being born again that he talks about here. And unless you go through that, he's saying you can't see the kingdom of God. It's not about knowledge, it's about trust. Does that make sense? You can know that Jesus died for your sins, but it's quite a different thing to trust it. And the way you know you're trusting it is you're not carrying all the baggage from the past. It's so important that we get this because this is why he rose again. This is why we're here worshiping as Christians. It's why we worship him in the first place. There should be an excitement that comes from that freedom, from that forgiveness of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Born, he's referring to baptism through the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is of flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is of Spirit. Do you marvel at the things that I've shared with you? 
You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit. You know how you got it? You just know. Somehow God has become real to you. Somehow God has grabbed hold of you. Somehow you are now different in the way you're looking at life because it can't be the same anymore. If you trust this stuff, it cannot be the same. Praise be to God if you grew up knowing him. I did. I've never doubted him in the day of my life. I love that. But I even came to a place in my life where he became more real. And it changed my life forever. I want that for all of you. That's the idea of a before and an after, a beginning again, that your life is different because of Jesus. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive the testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you're watching what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's blowing Nicodemus' mind a little bit, right? He's blowing out the boundaries of who he is. He's starting with Nicodemus and this idea of transformation, right? This idea of conversion, coming to faith, helping Nicodemus realize that what he's offering is different from the old. It's offering the Messiah. It's offering the forgiveness. It's offering the new beginning, that there's something new coming. And then he goes on to posit, you know, I'm talking about earthly things. You don't get it. If I talk to you heavenly things, you're not going to get it. And then he goes, the only one who can understand heavenly things is the one who comes down from heaven, the Son of Man, Referring again to um, Ezekiel's prophecy, but, but Nicodemus has known enough that Jesus, that's who he's claiming to be. That's who John's claimed that he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah to come. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's probably pretty cryptic, but it probably became very clear when he was watching Jesus hang from the cross. If you notice, Nicodemus was one of the ones that showed up right after Jonathan, right? To take care of his needs, brought the big jar of whatever it was, the alabaster or whatever to, to, to anoint his body with. He was one of the first ones to claim and to take care of Jesus' body after his death. Somehow, Jesus began to cultivate what God was doing in Nicodemus' heart. Nicodemus knew something was different. And Jesus just kept expanding as the conversation went on throughout the night who he was and what he came to do. And my prayer is may he do that for you too. That the more you get to know him, the more you understand his love for you. That the more you get to know him, the more complete you understand his forgiveness. That the more you get to know him, the more strength you draw from him. And that you're reminded always that you are loved, that you're forgiven, that you're his. Let me give you a couple of these questions before you go. Does that mean that one must be baptized in order to go to heaven? Uh, yes, uh, with this exception. The thief on the cross was not baptized, right? But he came to faith. The reality is it's just faith in God that saves, right? And so if you don't have time to get baptized, 
you're fine, right? It's faith in Jesus Christ that saves. All three of the sacraments give the same thing, baptism, communion, and and the word. They all say, I love you, I forgive you, you're mine. Every single one of them. You have one of them. You can come to Jesus, you can be saved by him, you'll be in heaven with him forever. One of his commands to his his disciples is to be baptized. Be baptized or believe and be baptized and be saved, right? I mean, the reality is he wants us to do it. It's the way he claims us into his kingdom. It's it's the seal that he gives us, the Holy Spirit that he gives us. wants us to have every single help possible as we go through this very difficult world. He wants to reside in us through the Holy Spirit to give us help and strength and wisdom and guidance to help us remember the words and promises that he gives. He wants us to have all that. It's the way he adopts us into his family. And so the question for a believer is why would you not want that stuff? There is no good answer for that. I don't want all the good stuff because... Luther calls it despising the sacrament, despising baptism. My encouragement is don't despise it. Get baptized. Get baptized because God is like a big birthday party where he wants to give you all these amazing gifts, where he wants to give you the permanence, the knowledge. There's a difference between being a son, right, and being a servant. He wants to adopt you into his family so that you are his son, you are his daughter, so that there is that comfort, that there is that security, that you have that knowledge that you're his no matter what. So it's yes and no, right? It's faith that saves, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized, come see me tonight. I'd love to baptize you tomorrow or or tonight if you want to stay around. I I just, God wants that for you too. And so just kind of figure out a way to make that happen in your life. I, I want that desperately for you. What was the Old Testament ritual meaning of washing baptism, ritual meaning of washing baptism equivalent? Um... So it was one of the things they did for conversions of Gentiles to Jewish believers. They would baptize them, I guess, into the new faith, kind of washing off all the impurities. It was also one of the things that the priests did before they entered into the holies, the holy place. They would wash themselves of all the impurities so that there'd be nothing on them, you know, that was impure as they go into the temple. It was a cleansal, it was a ritual washing which, it, which just kind of signified the washing away of the impurities of the sin before God. So they were right before him. And so it was one of the things that was commanded in Leviticus, and then it was also one of the things they did for proselytes. Those are all the questions. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm seeing the time, so let me pray. God, we love you so much, and, and I love, as we're going through John, he's, he's sometimes hard to understand, but man, does he have a lot to say. And so, Father, today I just pray that you remind us that you love us, that you came to this earth to grab hold of us and to make possible a way for us to be with you forever. That one of your things that it, in this corrupt, broken world where sin sh- should sentence us all to hell, that you loved us more than that, loved more than your anger over the sin, and you sent Jesus into the world to make sure that we could be with you. So as we walk away tonight, let us just be blown away by that love. Let us be blown away by Jesus as he continues his walk, knowing that his end was going to be the cross because he loves you. Let's be blown away by the forgiveness that he wins because it just means that God's love overcomes, overwhelms all of our mistakes. But let us be just blown away today by how much incredibly you love us. And we pray that today in Jesus' name and all God's people said.